It's the first Prez Monday check-in. We'll have a chat, but not spill tea. Hey, it's the first Prez Monday check-in. We got the Bible and Greg and me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Earth Tones edition of the Monday check-in. I was going to go with the brown quarter zip sweater edition of the Monday check-in. The last two days, completely yeah. by coincidence, or as Calvin would say, by providence, uh, Damon and I dressed almost identically. <laughs> My sweater is green. It is, and mine is brown, but Yours they're... Is, I think it's green. Pretty close in tone. I'm also told pretty frequently that the color that I think that a thing is is not the color that it is. Mm. What color was the dress? Which one? That famous one that was circulating on the internet about three or four years ago. Some people thought it was blue and some people thought it was, was it white or yellow? Black and gold. Black and gold, that's. Blue and black. Something like that, I don't know. I don't remember what it was. Doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it might matter to the dress itself. Could. If the dress was sentient. Mm Mm-hmm. Which it's not. Uh, Well, not that we know of. Fair enough. It is... uh, We can't actually prove that it's not. Because you can't prove a negative. And none of this has anything to do with the Monday check-in. Well, I don't know. It's a philosophical uh, sort of a thing. And a lot of these confessions are very just deep philosophical documents. They are. Um, So this is the Monday check-in. What we do in the Monday check-in is we preview the scriptures, the themes that we're going to use for the upcoming Sunday, First Pres Hastings. Uh, we have a little Bible study, ask questions of it, allow it to ask questions of us, and then we switch gears, and we talk a little bit about the life of the church and what's going on, what folks should be aware of. So, turn is it to do an opening prayer? I think you're opening and I'm closing. Fair enough. Let's okay. do that then. Loving and gracious God, as we continue our study, our examination, our exploration i suppose of some of the some of the thinking some of the theologizing uh some of the principled stances that those who have come before us in faith have taken and written down uh help us to gain from it help us to find moments of connection between it and our own lives um, help us to honor it and uh, to carry it forward as best we are able In your gracious and loving name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in the midst, this will be the third week, uh, of a Lenten series taking a look at uh, some of the creeds and confessions as recognized, I don't know if that's the right word or not, by the Presbyterian Church USA. Correct. We have a document that we call the Book of Confessions, which makes up the first part of our Constitution. Um, the Presbyterian Church is not a confessional church in that we ascribe to every word in a particular confession. There are some churches out there that are. But instead, we say that these confessions uh, speak to a particular time in faith and help us to articulate our own faith as well as how we go about living out our faith. And so, yeah, so we decided to study some of these creeds and confessions for the season of Lent. There are 10 of them. We will study five that are in the Book of Confessions, and then we have a bonus one that uh, Damon will be uh, helping us study on Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Yeah, so we started uh, with uh, we started at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start uh, with the Nicene Creed. That was two weeks ago. Uh, last week, uh, Damon and I uh, talked about the Scots Confession, and uh, Damon preached a, a lively sermon on the Scots Confession. Uh, it was also confessional in nature. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. confessing your your mm-hmm. own shortcomings as a human being and yeah, but a different, a uh, slightly different meaning of the word confessional. Yeah, I liked confusing those two words a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so, <clears throat> Nicene Creed three twenty five A D. Scott's Confession was fifteen sixty, and now we're going to jump into the twentieth century with the Barman Declaration, which was written in nineteen thirty four, I believe. I've got it here in front of me. It says um, in the opening bit. Does it? Okay. Yes, 1934. May 29th through 31st, 1934. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how each of these confessions are written at a particular time to answer a particular concern. Uh, so the Nicene Creed was trying to answer the concern of the questions about the Trinity and the relationship between God, the Creator, God the Father, and Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scots Confession was, of course, as Damon explained, part of the Protestant Reformation, and so had to do with answering questions or concerns about the what is what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, and the Scots Confession is sort of set over and against some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church of the day. Uh, yeah. A need to clarify faith in that context. This is uh, one written in Germany in 1934. Uh, where a group of theologians and pastors and actually lay leaders of churches uh, felt a need to clarify uh, the essential tenets of their faith against a force that was questioning some of those essential tenets of the faith, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the rise of uh, Nazism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... um, And then the National Socialist Party. Correct. In Germany. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Hitler was elected chancellor in 1933, Yep, I believe. And proceeded to um, remove a lot of uh, rights of the people and the citizens and uh, very quickly sought to align the National Socialist Movement with uh, the German Christians Mm -hmm. or with the the church. And so there was a movement within it called the German Christians uh, and that all happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so then there was a group of uh, pastors, theologians, university and seminary professors, and concerned lay leaders who gathered uh, in 1934. Um, and they were from three different Protestant denominations in Germany. Um, and so when you read the that's my understanding. Barman Declaration, it's going to refer to evangelical congregations. And that mm-hmm. just every time you see the word evangelical, replace that in our modern American English parlance with Protestant. So this is an appeal to Protestant congregations and Christians in Germany. And then when it goes through every time it says evangelical churches, that that, that is an interchanged for, because the German word for Protestant is often translated as evangelical, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. The same thing happens actually in Latin America. You have the Catholic Church and you have the evangelical church, which is the Protestant churches, but they don't use the term Protestant. They use the term evangelical, but it's interchangeable. And so that's uh, that's what's going on. But uh, the it was Lutheran, Reformed, 
and the United Churches. And I don't know much about the United Churches in Germany, but those were the three denominations where these leaders gathered um, to write this Barman Declaration over and against what the German Christian Church was doing. So, Yeah, it's... Um... This is not a, a document that I'd really have ever looked at before. Um, the Theological Declaration of Barman. It's uh, it's interesting that they have been can, they've been able to convene uh, essentially an ecumenical nationwide uh, gathering. Yep. In. Pretty short order. Yeah. <laughs> Which is rather remarkable. I, can you imagine being able to gather even, a, let's say, even just a statewide ecumenical Protestant gathering? Council. Yeah. That comes up for with... For the express purpose of making a statement that we can all agree to. A unified statement. Mm-hmm. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. I actually, I think is, it speaks to the rather remarkable circumstances <clears throat> that they were working within. I, I think that, that that's right. a really good point. I had not. Um, yeah, it it is. It is a remarkable thing that they were able to pull this off and pull this together so quickly, and you do have some important theological distinctions between Lutherans, Reformed Christians, and the United Church of Germany, but they were able to overcome those theological distinctions in order to make this statement, um, which is an important part of this. There was a sense of unity amongst these various churches that had had defined themselves as different from each other, mm-hmm. but they decided their unity, and particularly their unity in Christ, was more important than these theological differences that they uh they had defined themselves as, right? Yeah. Yeah, so my, my sense of sort of what is happening at the time, uh, that a, a totalitarian regime has, has moved into power, and as totalitarian regimes tend to do, they're seeking to exert control over the church um, essentially as a way of influencing people. Right. Yes. And getting the church, because if the church endorses the ideas of the rulers, then it adds more weight and authority. Right. Uh, to what they are to what they are doing. Right. And this. Um, and yeah. What they were doing was not good. No. And and. As it turns out, much of the church became very complicit mm-hmm. in this in Germany, and so these folks were standing over and against um, the complicit nature of the church with the rise of Hitler's Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in the midst of that, I seem to recall one of the key sort of theological assertions that the Barman Declaration makes. Uh, which is not new to the Barman Declaration, <laughs> but they, uh, which is essentially what they're saying. They're saying, no, as as evangelical churches, uh, please do remember that we believe in this, right? Uh, and the this is we believe that 
Jesus is the sole head of the church. Yep. Uh, and so anybody or anything else that would claim to have some sort of ruling or authoritative power over the church is that is invalid. Right. It's not the word that they used, but right. And they, they, in fact, they do, um, the structure of this document, it's actually not a very long document. And so I, I would encourage our listeners to go ahead and just Google a uh, Barman declaration and you can read it, and it, it's like one, two, three, it's four pages. Four pages. Yeah. Whereas the Scots Confession was something like 15 pages. So this is a relatively quick read. It starts with uh, an appeal to the Christian churches and then a theological declaration concerning the present situation of the German church, the German mm-hmm. Protestant church or the German evangelical church. And um, so with the rise of this National Socialist movement that became... Hitler's Nazi party was also the rise of a movement called German Christians. German Christians, yeah. That was not an official affiliation with any sort of a church. It was just a movement within that, mm-hmm. and the two found themselves very, very closely aligned, um, where you're combining nationalism or patriotism and uh, aspects of Christianity in order to, as you said, lend credence to or give support to a movement that we know was evil. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they seem they're responding in particular, perhaps to the was it the the Aryan? What's it called? Yeah the the Volk right the the need for racial purity asserted the racial superiority of the German people. The, or so, the, Volk. the passage of the so-called Aryan passage. The Aryan passage, yes, which was Aryan paragraph. Paragraph. Nazis enacted during these years was a so-called Aryan paragraph which called for the exclusion from the church of all Christians with Jewish ancestry. This had the egregious effect of making a race a direct criterion for church membership. Which, wouldn't that criteria make like the Apostle Paul ineligible for church membership? Indeed. Right. And it would also negate what the Apostle Paul wrote, that in Christ there is neither... Mm-hmm. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Right. And so, yet they were conveniently overlooking right. those passages. Yeah, in, it's a thing that seems obviously antithetical to the gospel. Yes. And yet, uh, in reading about the history of this movement, a lot of folks went along with it. Uh, because... As a, this is the study guide. It says, To appreciate the significance of the Barman Declaration, one must remember that to oppose the Nazis in 1934 was considered by many Germans to be at the very least unpatriotic and at the worst an act of treason. Thus, the confession, confessing churches stand at Barman when they wrote this document, which by today's light seems so prescient, so courageous, and so daring, was at the time by no means self-evident. And there are several examples of folks who, who made stances in opposition um, to the Nazi party on, on religious principle who were then severely punished some, for it. Some killed, yes. Right. Most were expelled. Mm-hmm. Some were held in prisons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so there was a series of oppositions to this um, 
1932, Niemöller organized the Pastors' Emergency League, a resistance effort that attracted thousands of church leaders. He was later held for seven years as Hitler's personal prisoner. And not long after Niemöller, you had uh, Lutheran Hans Asmussen uh, created a document called the Altona Declaration that was in response to a particularly brutal repression of folks. The Altona Declaration held that when secular authorities violate their mandate to seek the good of civil society, then Christians in turn must make a decision whether to cast their obedience to human authorities or to God. And then other gestures of protest prior to Barman included the Dusseldorf thesis issued by Reformed theologians, including Karl Barth, who wrote a big portion of this, the Bethel Confession of August 1933, an important paragraph which was drafted by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a theologian that we all know was eventually killed by the Nazis. I don't know if we all know it, but anybody who studied religion at a Lutheran institution of higher education certainly knows it. Yeah. And the Confession of Faith from the Synod of Bielefeld in 1933, just one day following the seizure of the headquarters of the German Evangelical Church by Nazi troopers. So there were these movements. This is the one that has made its way into the Presbyterian world, in part because uh, the Reformed Church of Germany, which would be the, like the Presbyterian Church of Germany, was one of the three co-signers. And Karl Barth, this Reformed theologian, uh, was one of the principal authors yeah. of this. And so this is why... But I did Google it this morning, and it's also on the UCC page. Okay. Um, it's okay. listed. Uh, mm -hmm. They have a number of declarations, and the Barman Declaration is right there too. So if you just Google Barman Declaration, you can read the, the text of the entire document, and it's certainly worth reading the whole thing. We're not going to be able to get to the whole thing today, nor in my sermon on Sunday, but uh, we commend yeah, the sure. document to yeah. you. Um, of the ones that we've read so far, it's also uh, the most easily well the nicene creed i suppose is pretty easy to read but in comparison to the scots confession it's much easier to read because it's much closer to how we continue to speak and to write right uh, as opposed to the scots confession which was <clears throat> each sentence was a paragraph with three different clauses and um explanations within explanations yeah. in the same <laughs> sentence <laughs> but so it is it's easier to read. I'd, I'd, it's not necessarily easier to understand. Yeah. But I did want to point out, though, Damon, there was a link to your sermon in here. I don't mm. know if in, in reading the, uh, the opening part, which is an appeal to Protestant congregations, um, so they, they talk about why they're doing what they're doing, and then they say, be not deceived by loose talk, as if we meant to oppose the unity of the German nation. Do not listen to the seducers who pervert our intentions as if we wanted to break up the unity of the German Protestant church or forsake the confessions of the fathers. Try the spirits, which is biblical language, like right? test the spirits, whether they are of God. Prove also the words of the confessional synod of the German evangelical church to see whether they agree with Holy Scripture and with the confessions of the fathers. If you find that we are, not, that we are speaking contrary to Scripture, then do not listen to us. Mm -hmm. So they're giving, right? There's... Mm -hmm. Right, But if you find that we are taking our stand upon Scripture, then let no fear or temptation keep you from treading with us on the path of faith and obedience to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's, there's a, if you can prove that this is not scripturally based, we'll acknowledge that, and you don't need to follow it. Don't listen to us. Uh, but then when they go through and actually get into the declaration, they cite Scripture in verse for each of their points. 
and it's also set up as a, as a dialectic. So they make the point, uh, starting with scripture, and then they clarify what that point is, and then it's followed by, we reject the false doctrine that does not make right. this point. And they do that with each of the points. And there's only, is it six points, I think? I think six. Yeah. There's only six points. So it's, it's definitely digestible. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, should we read some scripture? Yeah, so... And then see how that might correlate to something in there? Yeah, so one of the scriptures we picked, the first one we read is from Ephesians, and um, this is one that is directly cited in point three of the Theological Declaration of Barman. Although they only cite two verses, I picked out uh, six verses or seven verses, but let's go ahead and read that one. Okay, so this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 5, and then 14 through 16. Uh, this is Paul writing. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament, with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly and promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. There it is. That's the end of that. Great. What do you got? Uh, well, again, we've talked about how the purpose of this document is to ground our faith in Christ and recognize that we are an outgrowth of that foundation. We are the body of Christ. And so uh, Paul, I think, puts this poetically and and beautifully uh, and reminds us both that Christ is the head of the church and that we are the body of Christ. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, and it's quoted directly in the, uh, in the declaration. And so um, it's importance of speaking the truth in love and not being blown around by every wind of doctrine, I think, is uh, some good stuff. Yeah, and he's, he's using this really to establish this concept of Christ as the head of the church. Right. Right. Um, and so anything else that would uh, claim to be the head of the church, claim to have authority over what could be preached in a pulpit, uh, is not, right. not the head of the church. Right? Yep. Uh, and then from Acts chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. Big voices, these guys. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, 
By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Elders of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. That's where that ends as well. Yeah, so this one is not directly quoted in the Declaration, but um, as I was reading through the Declaration and thinking about the context in which it was written, it made me think back to the early disciples as the church was growing and spreading and some of the resistance and persecution they must have faced. And so this act passage, I think, is a, a good story of some of that. Um, it reminds us of that and how they stood on their faith and they stood on Christ as the sure foundation of their faith, even in the face of persecution, similar to what these theologians and pastors and, and mm-hmm. lay leaders were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again... What Peter says is he grounds it again in the name of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, that that is the foundation of who we are and what we're doing. And, um, and so, which is the same thing they're kind of doing here in the Theological Declaration of Barman. So mm-hmm. that was the purpose for the selection of that scripture. I'm, I, think, I think they work well together, but uh, we'll see how the week <laughs> plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's also, um, in the course of the Barman Declaration, because Jesus is the foundation, right, then that means that nothing else is the foundation. Right. And in particular, the state right. is not the foundation. Yes. And, and that is a, a... They're pretty clear about that, right? Yep. And that is... A, a notable shift from even the Scots Confession. Yep. Who, the Scots Confession said, you know, if a state's not doing something that really they should be doing, then you can critique them. That's fine. But really, they understood the state, the government, mm-hmm. to be uh, anointed by God, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. The there was the church and the state were the same thing. To them. And in right. Scotland, in 1560, that was largely true, right? right. The, mm-hmm. They were so interlaced together. Obviously, the uh, Enlightenment came, and there was this notion of that sort of separation. Mm-hmm. And so this declaration really clearly states that. Even quoting scripture that's often used to justify the state. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and so in point five, it starts by quoting First Peter two seventeen: "Fear God, honor the emperor." And so then these theologians go on to say, Scripture tells us, in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has, by divine appointment, the task of providing for justice and peace. It fulfills this task by the means of threat and exercise of force, according to the measure of human judgment and human ability. The church acknowledges. The benefit of this divine appointment and gratitude and reverence before him, it calls to mind the kingdom of God, God's commandment and righteousness, and therefore 
the responsibility both of rulers and of the ruled. It trusts and obeys the power of the word of God, which upholds all things. We reject the false doctrine as though the state over and beyond its special commission should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life, thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. So the state cannot take the place of the church, right? And then it goes further. We reject the false doctrine as though the church, over and beyond its special commission, should and could appropriate the characteristics, the tasks, and the dignity of the state, thus itself becoming an organization of the state. So it rejects that the that state can take over the role of the church, and it rejects that the church should take over the role of the state. It says these two things are distinct, mm-hmm. and you cannot intermingle them. Mm-hmm. And that they're they're very clear about that, and the danger that that leads to, right? Mm-hmm. And our founding fathers were very clear about that in the United States when they wrote the Constitution and wrote in there uh, a clear distinction or delineation, a separation of church and state that was intentional precisely because they had come from primarily England and Scotland mm-hmm. where the church and state weren't separated where they were all one entity and they discovered that that was neither faithful to the church right. nor faithful to the role of the state mm-hmm. yeah and because I mean as as church leaders I don't don't want really to be responsible to the state in any way shape or form right right um which i'm really not asked to do (laughs) unless i'm signing a marriage license which is a weird quirk in american law that Mm -hmm. uh damon and i have to act as agents of the state if we perform a wedding because our signature on that marriage license functions as the state uh officially certifying or endorsing that marriage, which is really weird. Uh, But otherwise, we have this separation of church and state, which we tend to think is a a good thing. Seems seems like it for for the most part. Precisely because in our fallen and sinful world, when humans amass too much power and take both the organ of the church and the organ of the state and put it together... What history has told us is that ends badly. Yeah. Both for the church and for the state, but ultimately for God's people. Right. And that we can no longer claim Jesus as Lord. Right. Because it leads to the the sort of thing, and this connects with the Scots Confession as well, right? Or at least the way that I thought about it, right? Because it leads to the sort of thing where if the church all of a sudden is involved in endorsing policies of a state, then it makes those policies look like divine edicts. Right. Right. Um, if a church is all of a sudden saying, you know, whatever it is, then, then it makes it easy to, to see, oh, well, that's a divine edict. It, it, you know, I heard it from the pulpit or right. wherever. Um, that, oh, no, like just uh, some some person came up with that someplace. Um, right. Because based on a, a political philosophy of some sort. Yeah. Or whatever that sort may be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one of the dangers. There are other there are more serious um, dangers as well. But. Yeah. 
I don't know. You think it'll preach? I, I think it'll preach. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. And, and I think it's important that we look around our current world today and look at ways that this may be creating risks for ourselves as Christians and risks for the state. Um, I know certainly um, some of what's happening in the war between Russia and Ukraine has the patina of the church involvement because the Russian Orthodox Church seems to be blessing the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is resisting. Um, and so there's an example of that overseas. But I think even in our own backyard here in the United States, we need to be aware of these dynamics and aware of the reason that this Barman Declaration was written in 1934 and make sure that these things aren't necessarily creeping into our systems and our psyche because uh, because if we proclaim Jesus as Lord and our first loyalty as Christians is to the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. we are citizens of that kingdom first and foremost. We've got to be careful when, when, king, when there's kingdom creep, if you will, right? Yeah. I think one... It, um an example that I think folks have a lot of experience with is the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. And do Christians say the Pledge of Allegiance? Right, and there are a lot of churches who uh, right. discourage their members from mm-hmm. saying the Pledge of Allegiance because what you're saying is you're pledging allegiance to a flag and the nation that it represents. And as Christians, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to Christ as head of the church and Christ as head of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's always a question of how do we balance right. these, these things, right? Um, we want to be good citizens, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we want to be good neighbors. <laughs> and when sometimes those things are the same thing, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they come into conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one that folks, that I, every day in elementary school, I think, up to a certain point, we said the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Um, that sort of stuff. You know, even like, should a pastor show up at a political rally? Right. Of any sort. It's a question. <laughs> you know, um, and if so, in what capacity is that pastor doing it? Right. Are they doing it in the capacity as concerned citizen? Mm-hmm. Are they doing it in the capacity as as pastor? Is it both? Can is it possible for it to be one and not the other? Right. Mm, big questions. Yeah. Have fun with this sermon. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. We're going to wrestle with this one all week. Um, just so you all are aware, too, uh, we're going to record a longer format conversation uh, with Dr. Dan Deffenbaugh, our scholar in residence, uh, about the Barman. We're going to get m- more into the history of it, um, as well as the theology of it, uh, in addition to the application of it. And so um, be on the lookout for that. We will probably uh, early next week post that conversation. We might post it earlier than that, too. Um, but that's in lieu of uh, our adult head forum on Sunday, which we will not have, which is a good segue into our announcements. Isn't right. It? There yeah. is no adult head forum this coming Sunday, March, whatever it is. 12th. 12th. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's spring break. 
So there's uh, no forum on Sunday. There's no Sunday school on Sunday. And there's no Wednesday Night Live this week. Correct. Uh, on whatever this Wednesday is. March 8th? Let's see. Must Today's the 8th. 6th, so mm-hmm. it must be the 8th. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so yeah, so we're going to record that, Dan. That, we're going to record that, Dan. Get that, Dan, recorded. <laughs> yeah, there goes a Dan. Get it recorded. Um, we're going to record that conversation with Dan and, uh, and post it. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, other things going on in the life of the church? Um, well, uh, we, if you're listening and around Hastings on Saturday, this is not technically a church event, but it involves uh, a lot of our beloved church members. Uh, there's a Hastings Symphony Orchestra concert on Saturday. Is it 4 p.m., Damon? Yeah. And it's really cool because they've taken a couple of local songwriters and they've given their songs to somebody to write a full orchestra score to. And so then featured in this concert will be this original music written by these local songwriters who are being backed up by an entire symphony orchestra. And it turns out not one, but two of those local songwriters happen to be members of First Presbyterian Church. Uh, one of them is named Peter Lainson, who is a very accomplished and talented guitar player. And the other one, um, oh gosh, who is it? What's her name? I, don't, I forget. Okay. Uh, I think, oh, it's it's Hannah. Hannah Jensen-Heitman. Uh, oh. Yeah. And, uh, and so... hope I'm free on Saturday. In addition to the fact that it's two of our own church members who are the singer-songwriters being featured, also the director of the symphony orchestra is uh, Byron Jensen, and this is his last season before he retires as the director of Symphony Orchestra. So this is going to be a great concert, and I encourage you to attend. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's on Saturday. Uh, other, you know, other than spring break next week, uh, worship continues as normal. There's the 8.30 service. There's 10.30 service in the sanctuary. With Cathedral Brass With and Cathedral the Brass Chancel Choir. And the Chancel Choir. And also on that Sunday, there's a thing called Chunch, which is uh, Church and Brunch at Blue Fork. Worship continues in the sanctuary as normal. If you would like to, uh, during that hour, assemble yourself at Blue Fork, uh, and you could have brunch. You could enjoy brunch and fellowship with others while watching and participating in the worship service via the live stream in the Blue Fork, I'm just calling it the party room. So uh, if you would like to do that, we did this the once path in the last last summer. Uh-huh. Uh, we're gonna try it out again, see what happens. It's a good opportunity to invite a friend to come along as well to, to this event. If you think that you are gonna go to that, if you <laughs> could please let the church know uh, that would be appreciated so we could send uh, past numbers along to folks. So we know things like how many bulletins do we need to have there? Uh, how many tables and chairs do they need to make sure that they have set? <coughs> All that sort of stuff. So uh, that's this Sunday, March 12th. March 26th in the evening, uh, starting at 5 p.m., there will be a soup supper. This is part of our 150th uh, celebration uh, event schedule. Uh, so there will be a soup supper in the fellowship hall, followed by a series of uh, first-person vignettes 
uh, in the sanctuary, which are sort of recalling, remembering the stories of past members of the congregation. We're calling it Memorable Members is the evening. So you could come and have soup and then move into the sanctuary and learn a little bit more about the history of, of some of the members of those who have come before us at First Presbyterian Church. Um, you could also just come for that if you wanted to, like if you didn't want soup for some reason. Just come at 6 o'clock yeah, and just, it'll be in the sanctuary. Just come at 6. So uh, that should be a, a lovely evening as well. So I think that's, uh, that's a lot of announcements. That seems like everything. I think we've covered it all. Yeah. Should all we right. pray? Let's do that. Right. Let's, uh, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for uh, the witness of Christians throughout time and across the world. And this week, we're especially grateful for the witness of Christians who gathered in Barman, <clears throat> who thought critically about what was happening in their country and chose to take a bold and prophetic stand by writing a declaration that claimed what they believe that claimed Christ as Lord and as the foundation and cornerstone of the church and claimed their loyalty first and foremost to Jesus Christ. May we be inspired by their words and their work. And as we look around our world today, may it inspire us to ensure that we too are claiming Christ as our Lord and our sure and certain foundation. And may we look at the ways that we can live out the gospel of love in the world so that through it, people will come to know the saving love and grace of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, then, with all those things said and done, until next time, toodaloo.